to be able to say that. You've been practicing that in front of a mirror, haven't you? I can tell. Thank you, Nate. Hey, good morning, everybody. Hey, it's going to be back. I wasn't here last week. Uh, You may not have noticed, but uh, I was out in Washington State. We were there uh, doing a scattering service for uh, my father-in-law. And... uh, but it's it's so cool because we were there, uh, you know. It's it's not quite spring there yet, and uh, I was I was playing in the snow a, a week ago today. Uh, actually, I was in a snowball fight with my wife. <laughs> you can ask her how that turned out. She's she's not shy about telling you who won that fight. But either way, uh, <clears throat> it's a uh, it's a contrast, isn't it? When you see the. The differences of like being out there in the cold and they had the lonus coats and we had to bundle up and go out there and play in the snow. And it's fun for a moment, but I don't want to live in that. I'm very, very happy being right here where these beaches are so beautiful. That's it. I'll take our, our snow white sand over the snow uh, any, any day. They are beautiful beaches. But imagine if, if, if Panama City this Panama City Beach decided they wanted to, to build a sign that advertised how beautiful these beaches are. Like, and we, and we put all of our money into it. Like, we spared no expense, and we built this amazing sign that's, you know, just a technological wonder, and, it, and it's interactive, and it's beautiful to behold. And people started coming from miles around just to be able to see that sign and see how beautiful and amazing it looked. And then imagine that after they see that, they get in their cars and they head on out of here. And all the restaurant owners and resort owners are like, wait, aren't you going to come down to the beach, see the beautiful beach that it's advertising? And everybody's like, no, no, I'm good. I just wanted to see the sign and they, and they take off. I mean, it's ludicrous, um, but it's sort of the problem that Jesus was running into with his ministry. People becoming enamored with the miraculous signs so much so that they didn't see what the sign was pointing to. And that's something that we're going to be thinking about today as we continue our study in the Gospel of John. Uh, you got a Bible with you and you want to follow along, if you'll go to John chapter 4, please. We're going to be finishing this chapter up today, amazingly enough. Last week we read about the falling action after Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. Uh, and Blake did a great job, didn't he, of, of, uh, with that section? Just teasing out all the nuances of that, reminding us that, uh, you know, of our calling and of God's timing and how that we're just participants in the work that God's already uh, doing. Now, today, some of the same themes of seeing differently are going to carry through into this section. And we're going to read an interesting story that reminds me of those old paper maps. Back in the day before we had phones tethered to us, we used to have maps that were made out of paper. And you'd, you'd get them, and they were like a little thing like this, and then you'd start unfolding. You had to keep, and it would just go on. It felt like forever, especially when I was a little kid. But this story's kind of like that. The more we unfold it, the more we're beginning to see and recognize that's here. And we're going to be challenged to a specific kind of faith in, in our story today. And along the way, we're going to discover even more important things about Jesus and how it is that we relate to him, and you'll see it as we go. So if you're there in John chapter 4, we're going to begin with verse 43. Uh, It says, At the end of two days, Jesus went to Galilee. He himself had said that a prophet is not honored in his hometown, yet the Galileans welcomed him, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and had seen everything he did there. Again, as we've been repeating, um, it is virtually impossible 
to try to harmonize uh, how John moves Jesus around the map and in the timeline in all this. Remember, John is teaching theology by telling stories. So it doesn't mean that the stories aren't accurate, but his objective is not a chronological timeline for Jesus' ministry. We can find that in the other three Gospels. But John is trying to reveal who Jesus is. Remember the phrase, if you want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. We, we pay attention. We listen to what he says. We pay attention to what it is that he does. And we understand more about this God that created us. Now, verse 45 Seems like Jesus is getting a positive reception from the Galilean people, indicating that they had expectations, that something cool was about to happen because of what they'd seen Jesus do in Jerusalem. And that sentence becomes thematic for the section that we're reading today. They had seen something that prompted them to believe that Jesus could do great things. And and as the story unfolds, we find that that kind of believing is not christ's objective for us for for our lives and our own hearts you know the old saying seeing is believing yeah but god challenges his people all through the biblical narrative but especially here in these gospels to see with something other than our eyes much like blake was saying last week god challenges us to see with the eyes of our heart to see with the eyes of faith but we say something like that it's still a metaphor you know, our hearts don't literally have eyes. So what does that mean? How do, what does that look like in, in real life? That is what this story is going to be about. So let's keep reading. Verse 46. As he traveled through Galilee, he came to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a government official in nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son who was about to die. Okay, so we're back to where this all started. This whole section, remember, is a, a section that in, in, the, in the book of signs that's dealing with the institutions of Israel. So we started in Cana, turning water into wine, dealing with issues of purification, things like that. Now we come full circle. We're back to Cana again. So he's wrapping this section up. And uh, uh, John identified that as his first sign, turning water into wine. Now he's done other miracles, But John is selectively pulling some out and calling them signs, indicating that they are are giving us clues and pointing in the direction of of who Jesus is. So we've got our characters and we've got the crisis that brings them together. We're introduced to what the NLT translates as a government official. He was called a uh, basilikos in the Greek, meaning royalty. And it's the root word we get for basilica, which is a, a royal or a holy house. And it probably indicates that he is an official who works in Herod Antipas's court because Herod Antipas was dwelling there, was uh, residing in the Galilean region. So let's look at this guy for a second. He's not, he's not a religious leader like Nicodemus was. He's a political leader. He's not a social outcast like his prior encounter with the woman at the well. He's a man of political power and respect. So think about what this reveals. We're touching all strata of society uh, in, this, in these stories. It's, it's just a good reminder that while a lot of emphasis is placed in the Gospels on Jesus reaching into the margins uh, and didn't, you know, not allowing social convention to dictate his grace, Jesus also has equal compassion on the powerful and the respected pillars of society. And you know why? Because we all need the same grace, right? 
the woman at the well and the, the, this amazing official from Herod Antipas's court need exactly the same thing. This is a one cure heals all kind of thing. And so all of us are equalized at that point. Nobody's greater or lesser because all of us live by the same grace. Anyway, a man of his position coming to Jesus with the demeanor that he had would certainly have been conspicuous. It says he was begging Jesus to, to come and help and heal his son. So in the urgency of his son's condition, he pushes aside any of the dignity that should have been due his office. And he just reaches out to Jesus in desperation, asking for his help. So far, this is right on track with how things go in the Gospels, right? We're kind of checking off the boxes here. A, a respectable person uh, pushes aside his dignity and humbly asks Jesus for help. This is great. We've, we've seen this before. We know how this is going to go until we get to the next verse. Verse 48, and Jesus asked, will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? It's like a record scratch. It's like, like what, what just happened here? Why, why did Jesus respond this way? When others come for humility, come in humility for help from Jesus, he says nice things like your faith has saved you and all kinds of encouraging stuff. Why does this guy get a rebuke? It's intriguing to me. Those are the kinds of things that trip me up when I'm reading this. This is where we have to recall what was said in verse 45, that the Galileans welcomed Jesus because they had seen the things that he had done in Jerusalem. So it's safe to assume that this royal official had seen them too. It's likely he's Jewish. It's likely he'd been in Jerusalem. He's seen this as well, finds out, hey, Jesus actually came up here to Galilee, which prompted his approach to Jesus. So the the welcome from the Galileans and this request was based on things seen. Seeing is central here. But Jesus retorts, you're never going to believe in me unless you see these miracles. And he says, you like you who like who is you i mean it's terrible grammar but it's a great question like you as in the royals and the elites in power or you as in a galilean among all the galileans or you as an israelite among the israelites or you as a human being among all of humanity and it's likely all of the above just depending on the context that the situation calls for john is teaching theology through these stories. And here he's teaching us something about faith, or at this point, a faith that's based on what's seen. And I think the point underlying all of this is that faith based on observing the miraculous can be shallow and limited because it always needs more miracles to keep it propped up. It always needs something else to happen to support a willingness to trust. So back when I was in the crazy church, and if you don't know what I'm talking about when I say that, but I was, when my formative years as a Christian, I was part of an independent, charismatic, and ultimately abusive church. And our doctrinal construct in that church was centered largely on supernatural stuff. You know, miracles of healing and financial provision, you know, health and wealth, some might say uh, something along those lines. We determined that if a, a person had enough faith, then they would always get healed or get rich because God rewards faith. You know, he set the system up. We didn't, and he's obligated himself. So there you go, God. I got to have it, and you got to give it to me. Now, we formally stated that that our faith shouldn't be based on signs and wonders. That's what we said outwardly, but that didn't stop us from doing just that. So we were presented a constant parade of 
examples of people who had enough faith to get a new car or miracle healer people that had enough faith to make sure that everybody got healed when they came to their meetings. And we went from conference to conference, apostolic miracle conferences to witness more supernatural activity, which we said would encourage our faith. But I'm telling you, we ended up like religious junkies standing around a street corner waiting for something to to, to come along next. We, we had to have that stuff in order to keep the energy that was necessary to continue on in this path. And it's clear that Jesus didn't want that happening with his followers. He wants something deeper for us, something more sustainable, something that actually takes us through to the other side. He doesn't want us just to be people who believe in his ability to work a miracle, but for us to believe in him. And that kind of belief is about trusting and submitting our lives to him and leaving it to him as to whether or not there will be a miracle at all. In Hebrews eleven thirteen, the writer speaks of those who died believing God, yet having not received what they had been promised. That's an amazing statement when you think about it. Let it soak in for a second. These died believing in this stuff, but they never got to see it. Yet they believed anyway because they trusted God with the bigger picture. They were looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. That's the faith that Jesus is encouraging from his followers. It's deeper than, than what we can witness on these surface phenomena, moments of excitement. That, I believe, is what this story is pointing us to. That's why Jesus asked in verse 48, will you never believe in me without these signs? That is, believe in me as the Messiah, as the king of God's kingdom. Even though this guy's approach to Jesus carried a sense of humility, he's coming and begging, we do see the limitations of his faith. Right there in the story, he comes for healing, and in his mind, Jesus has to be present with his son in order for him to be healed, in order for that to happen. So in this sense, even though he's begging, he's making demands of Jesus to fulfill his expectations of how this is going to go down. Capernaum was about a day's walk from Cana. So there's a presumption present in this that he's instructing Jesus as to how to conduct this healing. You have to come with me. You got to accompany me there. You got to go stand in the room with them, wave your hands or lay them on them or whatever. It it belies an intention to seek Jesus as the means of getting a need met instead of as a king from whom he submissively was seeking help. There's a big difference there. Make my life the way I want it to be as opposed to grant me life that I don't have on my own. You see the distinction? All right, well, let's keep reading. Verse 49, the official pleaded, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. Then Jesus told him, go back home. Your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. Oh, man, this is where the story gets good. This is awesome. So this guy presses on. He's no longer a royal official anymore. He's not somebody barking orders. He is simply a father who's worried for his child and asking for help. And pay attention to the evolution of this man's faith as it goes along. John's highlighting it for us. Jesus speaks, and this man believes with no further tangible evidence. 
Jesus answers by, actually in the Greek, it's funny. Jesus answers by telling him to go away. Jesus answers in one word, go. But we, we understand from the context of the way the word's used, he means go home, you know, head on home. And the next words make it all better because Jesus said, the kid's going to be okay. He, your child's okay. But look at this. Jesus places himself between the request and the healing so that the man had to step out by faith, walking home without what he had come and asked for. He had to decide to believe in all the possibilities of Jesus and not just bring Jesus and his reputation to his house and get what he needed. So there's something that I think is really instructive in this, this that we grow in faith by trusting in Jesus's words alone. And it feels like John is building this story in stages. And we're seeing here a higher basis for faith than just witnessing something that feels like tangible evidence. Like, you know, well, I believed it, so, I mean, I see how I saw it, so I can believe it, or, or whatever. Now it's going further than that. It's deeper than that. Here Jesus speaks a word, and the man believes it. And we know he believed it because he started home without a single indication that anything in his situation had changed. And he went home without Jesus accompanying him, the very thing he asked to happen. And as he walks down the road, we all walk with him, along with everyone who has believed Jesus' words. We're all there. We're all walking. Jesus said he has come to make all things new. And we believe him at his word, and we walk down the road, even though all evidence points to this world being just as bad as it ever was. Jesus said he's going to be with us always, even to the end of the age, even though there are many, many times we feel very alone. Jesus said that his love would never fail, that he would call us friend, even though we keep failing and we don't seem to find friends sometimes. We take him at his word and we still believe him and we continue on. We all have to walk down that road with Jesus' words ringing in our ears, with fearful doubts racing in our minds, willing our hearts to believe in all the possibilities of God at work in this world. But see, this is, this is a, another subtler theme in John's gospel. More than once, Jesus chooses not to be where he's expected to be. The, the crowds can't find him in chapters 6 and 7. He shows up where they didn't expect him to be. They're looking around. He's not here. No, he's over there. What? He's not where they expect him to be when, when Lazarus uh, is sick and his sisters ask him to come and heal him. He doesn't show. He's not there. And when the women go looking for him at the tomb, guess what? <laughs> he's not there. The absence of Jesus is a powerful aspect of revealing who Jesus is. And that is John's point. He's driving home a message to us, not to the people who were contemporary with Jesus and there while he was doing it. This, you guys, is for us. This is for us sitting here, right here. What he's describing to remind us, to reveal something to us. Because it all leads up to the climax of John chapter 20. Jesus says to Thomas, after he's proved his resurrection to him, he says, you believe me because you've, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. And he was pointing at us in that passage. We don't physically see Jesus. We can't always see him at work. Will we still take him at his word? Will we still be willing to believe it? Believe him. Believe the promise that he made. Believe that he is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. 
that through him, all nations would be blessed. All of us would be able to come back into relationship with God. Can we believe him at his word alone? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 51. While the man was on his way, some of his servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. He asked them when the boy had begun to get better, and they replied, Yesterday afternoon, I don't know, about one o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. <sighs> then the father realized that was the very time Jesus had told him, Your son will live. And he and his entire household, a royal official, his entire household, believed in Jesus. This was the second miraculous sign Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judea. Okay, that's where we'll stop. It's a dramatic scene, though, right? It's, it's powerful, and it's joyful, and it's wonderful. And again, it's describing this evolution of this man's faith. First, he believed in Jesus' ability to, to help his son. Then he believed his word. He believed what he said. And then verse 53, he puts the, this all together, and he and his family believed in Jesus. And that's the key. Now they believed not just that Jesus could do some cool stuff or that Jesus could help them out of a jam, but coupled with verse 54, identifying this miracle as a sign, this man now had faith in Jesus as Messiah, and he submits his life to him. So the trajectory of this story leading us up to that conclusion is, is teaching us that our greatest expression of faith is a life that's submitted to and trusting in Jesus. That's the faith that God's looking for. You know, trusting in God's sovereign promises as we follow along the Jesus way. It's so important. Listen, and, and, and this is a str- struggle for us, especially in our modern context, but we don't want to see this story as a lesson on how to get Jesus to do miracles for us. That's not the point of this story. The, the point of the story is to help us recognize who Jesus is. Not just a, a miracle worker through whom we can seek the fulfillment of our desires, but as Messiah to whom we submit our lives, regardless of what's happening. That's the progression. People seeing Jesus do wonders, it ignites interest and hopefulness that leads to trust Entrusting life to Jesus as God's Messiah, as uh, through whom God is going to redeem all things. That's where this was heading. That's what God wants in our lives. That's why John concludes this story explaining this miracle was a sign. Jesus has done some other miracles, but this is a sign. This is trying to teach us something about who he is and how we're relating to him. As Westerners, we often just come to these stories like like this one, thinking they're meant to answer the question, well, did, did Jesus do miracles and how do I get one for me? That's not what this is about. Miracles in the Old and New Testament are an assumed reality and subject to God's sovereign will. That's how it's revealed throughout all of the biblical uh, narrative. The real question of this story, the question that John the author wants us to ask is, what do these miracles mean? Who is this one with such power? That's what we're supposed to sit back and contemplate, to to marinate in for a bit. What does this mean? Who is this? And what does it mean to me as one who's committed my life to him now? What does this mean? I mean, for example, when we get into this, I'm telling you, when when we take the time to contemplate 
what this is revealing about the nature of Jesus, the answers that we'll come to are stunning. Why did Jesus consider it unnecessary to travel with this guy to Capernaum to heal his kid? The answer that emerges is that Jesus is not confined to place. That's why the moment he said, your son will live, the boy was healed 23 miles away from where Jesus stood. He was present to heal even in his absence. And that truth becomes a revelation for us, something to consider in our own experiences when we wonder where Jesus is. He is present even in his absence. He is not confined to space. I'm telling you, John's loaded with this kind of stuff. It's so cool. Anyway, I'll calm down. The point of this story, the royal official wasn't looking for a sign. John concludes it that way. This is a sign. How cool. Well, the royal official didn't come to Jesus and say, can I get a sign or something? He came because his son was in crisis. He came for help. And Jesus, in his compassion, gives him the healing that he needs, which becomes a sign and leads him into trusting faith into Jesus as Messiah. But he had to take Jesus at his word, believing without seeing before he could see and believe who Jesus was. It's a strange little riddle, but it's, it's intriguing. It's a, it's a clever way in which he's teasing us, drawing us into this deeper willingness to commit our lives to him, regardless of what we see in the evidence around us. And it's a microcosm of the Christian life. We welcome, we entertain the idea of Jesus in our formative stages of this, and then we're willing to believe and take him at his word that by believing on him, he, he'll secure our salvation and, and reconcile us to God. And we set out on a journey of faith based only on his word. And that faith will come to fruition at the end of each of our stories. When we see Jesus, when we know as we are known, as Paul puts it. And in the fulfillment of our faith, we'll look back like this father did and realize Jesus had been there all along all through it all. So let's recognize this challenge to our faith. Let's grow in this. Let's move beyond those shallow things of faith. Let's dive deeper into this, a willingness to entrust all aspects of our life to Him, to move beyond the superficial of what's seen, and and, and let's listen to and truly believe that Jesus promises and what He says, that He will make all things new. Let's entrust our lives to him in all things, trusting in his compassion and his sovereignty. And even if we end up like those heroes of faith who died not having received the promise, we still get the promise anyway. Because we're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Believing without seeing that he's present, even in his absence. Right on? All right, cool. Well, one of the ways in which Jesus promised